Welcome to the Life is Better With You Here podcast with Dr. Childs. Here, we want to help, and where there's help, there's hope. A short disclaimer, this podcast is not a replacement for therapy. If you feel you need treatment, we strongly suggest you visit a physician or go to withyouhere.org slash therapist for assistance, finding a mental health provider. Our topic for today is suicide awareness with special guests, Dr. Josephine Ridley and Stacey Hubbard. Now here's our host, Dr. Childs. Hi, and welcome to the Life is Better With You Here podcast. My name is Dr. Shavana Childs, and today our topic is going to be suicide, education, conversation, and prevention. However, before we start, let's ground ourselves with a mindful minute. So I want you to find a position to relax in as I take you on this guided meditation. So I want you to make yourself comfortable in your chair, couch, wherever you are. Adjust your body. Slide around until you feel the small of your back cradled by the chair that supports you. Your shoulders are relaxed, free, and loose, not tight. Think about yourself floating like a cloud. You are as light as a feather. Feel yourself soar freely like a bird, high in the air. Or feel like a leaf being carried by the currents of the wind. As you focus on these thoughts and feelings, you become more relaxed. To deepen this experience, allow yourself to relax fully. As I count backwards from 10 to one, with each descending number, you will be more and more relaxed. By the time I reach the number five, you will close your eyes. By the time I reach the number one, you will be in a deeper state of relaxation than you are now. 10, nine, eight, seven, six, five. Your eyes are closed. Or you are more relaxed. Three, you are drifting into a profound state of relaxation. Two, you are calm and relaxed. And one, fully relaxed. Begin to think about round objects, balls of all different sizes. Now imagine one particular ball. Picture it in the form of a blown-up balloon. Allow the image of this balloon to form clearly. Imagine it has been blown up to its maximum capacity. Once you have the balloon clear in your mind, imagine how this balloon feels. Full, 
intense and distended. Hold that thought for a moment. Now imagine letting go, inflating the balloon, releasing all the trapped air. Experience the sensation of the air as it lets go, pushing eagerly out, leaving the balloon empty. Relax and back in its natural form. As the balloon returns to its original shape, it is time for you too to return to your surroundings. As you come back, bring back with you any sensations or thoughts from this experience that you wish. Feel now the chair cradling your back and tune into my voice as you open your eyes and return to the room. Welcome back. Hopefully you're feeling more relaxed and more grounded and ready for the serious and deep conversation we're going to have relating to suicide. Meaningful conversations, educations, and prevention. Today, I'm co-hosting with Dr. Ridley and our guest, Ms. Stacy Hubbard two wonderful people that are going to give us information, conversation, lift our spirits, and educate us. So first, I'm going to just share some statistics. And I usually don't like to bore people with statistics, but these are some statistics we need to hear and understand before we talk, okay? So nationally, suicide is the 12th leading cause of death. Ohio, it is the 14th leading cause of death. In 2020 alone, 45,979 people died by suicide in the United States. That is one death every 11 minutes. Just think about that. One every 11 minutes. That's a lot. 12.2 million adults seriously thought about suicide. Those are just thoughts. Think about everything you think about every day. Our thoughts race all the time. We think about a million things at once. 12.2 million people seriously think about suicide. 3.2 million adults actually made a plan. 1.2 million adults attempted suicide. So this is why we're having this conversation. This is why we want to talk to you about suicide. It is not a conversation that needs to be avoided. We don't need to be afraid. We need to confront it, face forward, discuss it, and educate people. In relation to race, in 2020, the rates for Black males and females and Native Americans and Alaska Native males increased slightly from 2019, while rates decreased for all other races and ethnicities and, and gender groups. It's highest for middle-aged white men. In 2020, men died by suicide 3.88 times more than women. On average, there are 130 suicides per day. 
In 2020, firearms accounted for 52.83% of all suicide deaths. 93% of adults surveyed in the United States think that suicide can be prevented, and that's a positive. So 93% of us know we think it can be prevented. This information is coming from the Suicide American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So now that we have those statistics, those are some things I want you to think about to keep in your head while we have this riveting, meaningful conversation about suicide. Now, often there are no causes, uh, but there is often mental health that is coinciding with these, such as anxiety, depression, or bipolar disorder. So with that, I invite my co-host, Dr. Ridley, and our guest, Stacey Hubbard, to let's have a meaningful conversation about this. So Dr. Ridley, give us your thoughts, your concerns, your expertise on this most riveting Thank you so much, Dr. Childs. I appreciate being here and co-hosting with you. And I'm so, so delighted to be able to share this platform with um, Ms. Hubbard. She's done some amazing work to help um, move our efforts towards suicide prevention forward. Um, she's been so generous in sharing, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to her sharing her story today. The statistics that you shared really are startling. And uh, one of the things that has really risen to the top of our, of our minds these, these days has been around Black youth suicides. In fact, when you look at African-American youth between the ages of 5 and 12, they outnumber suicides of their white counterparts. And that's been so devastating in the Black community. When you have a community that is already having a, a shortened life span, much shorter yes. than um, uh, Caucasian Americans. Um, when you look at all of the factors for health outcomes and how our, you know, there's disparity in health outcomes and disparity in healthcare in general for ethnic minorities, it, it really um, gives us pause and it makes us very concerned. One of the things that has happened recently is the United States Congress ordered in 2020 a special investigation looking at Black youth suicides. They, you know, the whole country has been wondering why the rise in these rates. And, and while we continue to find risk factors, um, you know, the psychological autopsies that they did for those, uh, you know, looking at Black youth who died by suicide have really shown some correlates, some, some factors that existed right before their, their deaths. And we can look at those things and maybe you know, increase our care for individuals who share those uh, risk factors. Uh, the best we can do right now is mitigate those risk factors. And so we're looking at things like the presence of ADHD. Typically in youth suicides, you would see some evidence of depression. Well, for Black youth between the ages of 5 and 12, it's typically ADHD. That's the primary psychiatric diagnosis. And that's one thing people aren't aware of. And we don't often take children seriously when they don't have a major depressive dis diagnosis. So the fact that in Black youth, you're not going to primarily see depression, you may see primarily ADHD, that gives us reason to pay much more attention to those youth and work really hard to mitigate whatever factors, probably the impulsivity, um, that may um, increase the, the likelihood of, of death in that age group. Any age group, it's, it's devastating. And suicide does not discriminate. We know that. 
It happens in every socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. every race, every gender. We know that and every country. Um, but what we have been trying to do is identify pockets of the community where rates suddenly seem to be increasing and we can't understand why. And that's definitely been among African-American and Black youth in the United States. And those are some startling uh, statistics and the information that you gave. And it's important that you brought up the ADHD factor um, because I remember back in the day when I was growing up, we didn't have those diagnoses of ADHD as much as we have them now. Yeah. Um, I remember our parents just saying, well, you just need to go out and play and burn off that energy. And that's not so much the case now. So it is very important that we recognize that as one of the individual um, risk factors that come along with this, particularly for our children, because that is startling when we have children in that age group thinking about attempting and or planning to commit suicide and that impulsivity that you spoke about. The impulsivity is, it's just that it's impulsive. You don't think about it, you're just doing it. It just happens like that. And when we do things like that, you know, there's a saying that, you know, suicide is a temporary solution, you know, or a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And we want to be able to give our kids, our people, you know, nationally, globally, something else that they can do in that temporary moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, some of the other risk factors that we have here that we talk about are previous suicide attempts, um, the history of depression and other mental illness, chronic pain, legal problems, um, job and financial stress. I've come across that when I talk to some of my patients. Um, I thought it was particularly interesting when one of the statistics that I read that in 2020 for people of color, it seemed that their uh, risk for suicide increased during 2020. And we know in 2020 is when COVID hit essential workers and all those types of things. And so that was something that I saw in my practice, yeah. you know, that people were suffering. You know, we were essential workers. We had to go out. We had to do those things. Um, we had to be a part of that. So those were some very serious um, situations where people couldn't take care of their families. They didn't know what they were going to do or fearful that they were bringing COVID back into their homes. You know, I'm so really glad that you brought that statistic up because one of the interesting things that happened at the beginning of the pandemic is everyone expected globally for suicides to rise across the world, right? And so we kind of braced for that and we tried to build in extra protections for people. So if we knew people had to shelter in place or isolate to prevent uh, the spread of the, uh, of the pandemic, then we tried to make sure they had access to um, telehealth or that they received mm -hmm. certain types of visits. We did all kinds of things to shore up um, people's protection or their connectedness or their ability to stay um, connected to others. And guess what? It actually worked worldwide, suicide rates did not go up like we expected. Now, they did go up in particular populations, like you said, the African-American community, all of the other communities saw a nice trend downward in suicide mm -hmm. rates that had actually started in 2019. It continued through 2020, 2021, and even the most recent statistics from this year are showing a, a continued downward trend overall. 
but in specific communities like the African-American community, um, Latinx community, um, LGBTQ community, yes. those communities. Um, and in some pockets of older adults, you saw a, a little bit yes. of a trend upward. So overall suicide rates went down, but in particular pockets, they went up. One of the most, like I mentioned earlier, one of the most startling increases was in Black youth. That had mm -hmm. already started back in 2018, 2019, and it continued. We didn't see it go down during the, the 2020 and 2021, like every other group. So we've been very disappointed about that. Um, we're trying to figure out what's happening in these particular groups. Um, in the Asian American community, we saw um, upticks in suicide um, deaths in certain pockets of the Asian American mm -hmm. community. And that would make sense in, in light of the anti-Asian hate yes. or anti-Asian sentiment um, that was growing in our community uh, for various reasons. But um, it's just been pockets of the population and not across every group uh, that we've seen slight increases in suicide rates. And, and that's pretty disappointing. One of the interesting statistics that um, people have asked me about is the, the fact that African-American women continue to be at the lowest rates of suicide of mm -hmm. any population. Right. So people often take that to mean, um, okay, there's the strong Black woman stereotype, the myth of the strong Black woman. The truth is African-American women outnumber many other groups in suicide attempts. They are the lowest suicide death rates, but not the lowest suicide attempt rates. And so while African-American men, um, much like majority culture men, um, mm -hmm. outnumber in, in suicide deaths, we still see um, African-American women dying at, um, I'm sorry, attempting suicide at higher rates. You know, and the, the other interesting thing is when we really drill down to look at African-American women, we've noticed that African-American women who are in higher socioeconomic status and more educated are more likely to have suicide attempts. So how do we make sense out of all of this? You know, we're really trying to, we identify risk factors for a particular reason. We want to mitigate them. We want to reduce those and as much as we can. We want to impact them just like we would if someone was at risk for a heart attack. We want to take risk factors for a heart disease and mitigate mm -hmm. them. We want to do the same thing with suicide risk. We want to mitigate it. It doesn't mean that these risk factors cause suicide. They are related to. It's like a lot of the risk factors for heart attack. You and I could be walking around with them and never have a heart attack. So we do the best we can. And one of the things we can do is identify risk factors, become familiar with them, and try to mitigate them in some way, try to reduce them. And we want to identify protective factors and shore them up, enhance them as much as we can. Um, one of the things I am looking forward to is hearing from Mrs. Hubbard. Um, yes. You have been so patient as we talked sat yes. here. Any thoughts, anything you wanted to share? And we, I am really looking forward to hearing your story as well. Um, yeah, it's listening to all the statistics and stuff. It just, you know, it, it, on one end, there's good that you see in it. And on the other, it's just super scary. Um, unfortunately, I've been through um, two family members um, that have passed away by suicide. Um, most recently, my daughter, um, she's seven, she was 17. Um, my brother uh, was 25 uh, when he passed away. 
and he was in the um, military. So, um, you know, that was several years ago. And ironically, Scott was um, Courtney's grand um, godfather. And so it's just kind of odd that it would be that closely linked together for a family. <laughs> That's extremely painful, I can imagine. And, but, you know, when you say it's it's odd that it's linked, one of the, the things we do know is that um, within families, um, having an exposure to another suicide is a risk factor for suicide. It's part of the reason we do so much postvention work. And I'm, I love the work of Frank Campbell, who developed lost teens that go to homes after the loss of a loved one to try to, in, you know, increase support to those family members. Those lost teams, for those of you who've never heard of them, um, suicide loss prevention teams actually go into the homes of individuals who've lost loved ones recently, like really the same evening. And they sit with them and they talk with them. They usually go out in teams of no less than two. And at least one of those two members of the team has lost someone to suicide. And so they have firsthand lived experience. These teams are powerful. They go in and they sit with the family members because what we don't realize is when a suicide occurs within a home, there's no one to clean up behind anything. Those, those family members are left, you know, trying to do whatever cleanup needs to be done. The coroners may remove bodies, but that's a painful thing to be there in the, in the home where a loss occurred. And so these loss teams are amazing supports. And they, there is really good research demonstrating the efficacy of, of loss teams in preventing um, family-related suicides. Because as they go in, they encourage those family members to get therapy, to get counseling and support. They also offer support and they help them to know that these these times when they're feeling so low won't last forever. So they've been pretty powerful. But one of the things we've recognized for a very long time is that loss of a family member to suicide is a risk factor for suicide. And I'm really, really, truly sorry for your loss. And I cannot imagine the level of pain that must be in having two really beautiful, wonderful people in your life um, gone too soon. Do you Absolutely. mind if we ask, you know, um, how long ago um, your daughter, Courtney, um, passed away? Uh, she passed away in um, the end of January in 2020, right as um, COVID was just getting started. Okay. Um, we were hearing more about it, uh, you know, out of the country. It wasn't really quite in the United States yet. Um, but yeah. And, you know, when you were talking about the lost teams, um, or Courtney, um, she passed away here at the house. So, uh, and we did have, uh, get offered to have the lost team come out and, uh, talk with family at the hospital. Um, and that was such a huge help to my family, uh, having them out there. So I can personally attest that, that they, they are a wonderful team and they are very helpful. And, um, you know, not, I can see where not everybody would benefit from it. Um, but for my family, it really did help out quite a bit. Wonderful. That's a wonderful resource to have. And I'm glad that is available. And thank you, Dr. Ridley, for sharing that because I don't think a lot of people knew that that was a resource. I did not know that that was a resource. Um, and that is something definitely want to be able to put out there so that other people are aware 
Absolutely. I know that Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation has been at the forefront of amazing suicide prevention work throughout the country. We are actually a benchmark here in, in Ohio because we do such great work. We were one of the first states to really promote um, Frank Campbell's um, suicide loss prevention teams. And um, with the Garrett Lee Smith grant they had at the time, they trained a lot of the coalitions to develop these loss teams. And so they've supported them throughout the years. And since then, I believe the Adams Board and different counties have picked up um, some of that that cost and and training prevention teams, loss prevention teams. So it's um it's been a remarkable journey to watch Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation really grow and take off and and do such amazing work throughout our state, but also to make um, to set a really good example for other states to follow. It is. And, and I'm glad that we talked about the risk factors, um, because like Stacy was saying, she didn't know that it would be so closely linked um, with family members. But again, as Dr. Ridley shared, that that actually is one of the risk factors. Um, so the risk factors that we have can be individual risk factors, relationship risk factors, and community risk factors. We also have societal risk factors. So there are a ton of risk factors that we can have. Some of the ones that I've read before um, in regards to job and financial problems or loss, impulsive and aggressive tendencies, substance use, um, current or prior history of adverse childhood experiences, which I think the misdiagnosis or a non-diagnosis of ADHD that Dr. Ridley was talking about, the sense of hopelessness. How many of us have been in a place where we just felt hopeless? We just felt like things weren't going to get better. We felt worthless. We felt useless. At some point in time, I think that we have all been in that space. Um, people who have been victims of violence and or perpetrators of violence. When it comes to relationships, bullying in high school, and bullying doesn't just stop after school. Bullying can be at work with coworkers, supervisors, family or loved ones, history of suicide a loss of a relationship. I have treated many patients that were, they felt like their world was literally going to be over because they lost a relationship. Um, high conflict or violent relationships, domestic violence. Um, how many times have we heard of murder-suicides um, in relationships? Social isolation is a big one. Um, you know, so these things can impact us all. Our communities, Dr. Ridley was talking about protective factors being connected to one another, having that connection with somebody, which globally, um, yeah, in 2020, we came together. A lot of us didn't have a choice. We were in the house together, so we had connection, but a lot of people were isolated because they didn't have anyone. So I could see for certain pockets, yeah, that probably did tick up for them. But for community factors, lack of access to health care. You know, we were talking previously, you know, right before we started the podcast of how some people, you know, were susceptible to suicide because they, the health, the insurance, um, you know, we're trying to find ways to get them uh, appointments or find them appointments. Well, there are resources out there where you don't need an appointment, you don't need the insurance. There are places and that we will share with you that you can get mental health appointments, if you're feeling in crisis, if you're feeling suicidal, if something is coming up for you, we don't need to wait for insurance. There are things that we can do 
that can help. Um, stress of acculturation, being a part of a new community, immigrants, going to a new city, a new state, a new school, again, that feeling of isolation and loneliness. Community violence, depending on where we live, you know, where we work, where we play, if it's not safe, if we're not safe, you know, that can all be too much. Mm -hmm. Historical or generational trauma, you know, we all have some of that. Sometimes we can feel like it gets to be too much. And we're here to tell you we can handle it. We can help you handle it. Discrimination, gender, LGBTQ, race, ageism. There's a lot of discrimination going around. We don't know how it impacts other people. We don't know when, we, when they feel like they've reached their limit. You know, those are the community risk factors, societal risk factors, stigma associated with help seeking and mental health. Nobody wants to think they're crazy so we don't seek help. Or in our family, we don't talk about secrets. We don't talk about that. Just go sit down somewhere or go take a nap. You'll feel better. What if I don't feel better? What if this is how I'm feeling right now? What if I'm so impulsive or a manic right now that I just can't take it? Taking a nap's not really going to help. But talking to somebody will. Easy access to lethal means of suicide among people at risk, firearms, substance abuse, hangings. There's tons of ways of people want to find a way. So being able to have these conversations with people, um, unsafe media portrayals of suicide, where people think this is funny, where people mimic hanging themselves or mimic shooting themselves. You know, to some people, this is a joke. To other people, this is their life. And so we really need to be careful with those kinds of things. So I'm interested, you know, Stacy and Dr. Ridley, what are your thoughts on some of the risk factors that I just read off? What, what do you think, you know, with some of the things that I've come across that I've said, what are some of your thoughts? Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about. Um, um, Stacy, did you want to go next? You can go ahead and I feel like I've talked too much. So I would love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. um, well, with regards to all of that, um, you know, watching my brother, start with him, um, he had the whole impulsive thing going on, you know, so it really resonates with me. Um, he, he was out with my sister that night watching a band and they were having a good time. She left him an hour, not even an hour before he passed away. And she still to this day has no idea what triggered him. She said he was fine when they left each other. So it's that impulsivity and, you know, there are going to be things around the house that, you know, people can use, mm -hmm. you know, to commit suicide. And honestly, uh, just having, having them like safely put away where it even takes just a few extra minutes, a few extra seconds to get out of that impulsivity, you know, could be all they need. You know, stripping everything out of your house isn't going to do anything because there's always something there. I mean, right. you got to think of safely putting things away and not having them so readily accessible. Sometimes you just need it. 
you know, a, a stop, just a few minutes stop just to say, oh, wait, what am I doing? This is not what I really want to do. That is so important. You know what, um, Stacey, I'm so grateful for you sharing that. One of the things that when people look at the difference between the rates of suicide deaths and the rates of suicide attempts, and they look at men and women, they often think, well, women must not be serious. They must be doing what's called a suicide gesture. Well, the CDC And most of the suicide prevention organizations from the American Association of Suicidology all the way to Suicide Prevention Resource Center all agree that we need to move away from the term suicide gesture because it's really a misnomer. What happens is people reach for what they have access to, and some means are more lethal than others. The lethality of the means is not to be used to determine how much the person intended to die. People reach for what they have access to and what they have knowledge of. One example of that, you know that uh, men outnumber women for suicide deaths, right? Women outnumber men for suicide attempts. Well, women physicians have twice the rates of suicide death as women in the general population. Why is that? Access and knowledge. And so men tend to have access to much more lethal means. They tend to have access to guns. And that's just, it's not a stereotype. In our society, men are more likely to have you know, access to guns to go hunting or to, Mm -hmm. you know, want to use firearms. Now, when you look at women veterans, you see women veterans outnumbering uh, women in the general population almost like 18 to 1 for suicide deaths. Why? They have access and they have knowledge. They usually have weapons. They're weapons trained if they've been in the military. And so a lot of this difference we see in those numbers is really about access to lethal means. And Stacey, you brought up something really important. One of our best methods for preventing suicide is to make our home environment safe. You know, we used to train people to do something we called restricting access to lethal means. We don't use the term restricting anymore. We talk about making the environment safe. We talk about lethal means safety. So usually when people have a method of choice, so when you talk to them, when a provider is finding out what ways a person had thought about killing themselves. They tend to stick within those ways. And so we try to find out everything they've thought about, and then we work with them, collaborate with them on making their environment safe. And so for those of you who are listening, and you know your loved ones have had thoughts of suicide, and they've been struggling, they've been in a lot of pain, talk to them about what they've thought about. If they thought about pills, then let's find a way to keep the pills locked up, and you help dispense the medications for them. You know, there's all kinds of ways to make the environment safe. Often people think that we are politicizing gun control, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, when in mental health, when we talk about making the environment safe and we say, hey, what about taking your guns out of the house just for a while? We're, we're talking about temporary, temporarily relocating their weapons just to keep them safe. We're not trying to, you know, take people's guns away from mm-hmm. them. We know that when you're in the throes of a crisis, your mind really narrows. It gets tunnel vision. It becomes very restricted. It is not thinking about how the problem can be ended any other way. Sometimes that pain feels overwhelming. It can hit you like a light. That's the thing about suicidality. It is very fluid. It ebbs and flows. You can have no thoughts in one moment and be ready to die in the next moment. And so because of its fluidity, we have to do what we can to keep the environment safe but especially at times when a person is in a depressive episode 
or they're in the midst of a crisis or something really heavy has happened. Let's think about how can we make that environment safe? And there's all kinds of ways from storing the bullets separately from the, the guns or letting your friends or your neighbors next door hold the guns while you're in this crisis. And they can, you know, when you, if you need to go hunting, they can, you know, go hunting with you, you know, and, and still store your guns and, and your shotguns for you. So it's, it's, again, it's not a political issue. It's a safety issue. We want to keep people safe. And we want to think outside the box. We want to think about what, you know, ask the person, what have you thought of? And then think about, okay, how can we collaborate to make this environment as safe for you in case a crisis hits? And you are so spot on, Stacey, about the impulsivity. Research has shown the amount of time between a person making a decision to kill themselves and actually carrying it out is anywhere from five minutes to an hour within that hour. So if we can delay access, if we can make it a little more difficult to get to those means, then we can save a life. And so when we talk about evidence-based practice, we're talking about practices or strategies that have empirical support for preventing suicides, for saving lives. And one of the best is finding a way to make the environment safe. Lethal means safety. That's one of the best. Of course, there's a wide range of therapies. We can talk about suicide prevention safety plans. So safety plans are often done in instances of intimate partner violence, but safety plans for suicide, suicide prevention safety plans are highly effective. One of the most um, used and researched methods of um, safety planning is the Brown and Stanley safety plan. So Gregory Brown and uh, Barbara Stanley developed a six-stage safety plan that works really well. Any professional, paraprofessional, non-professional can be trained to do safety planning with someone. And safety planning has been demonstrated to reduce suicide deaths by more than 50%. In countries that have focused on the primary method of suicide death um, in, in their country, and they found a way to kind of remove that method or make it difficult to get to that method, they've saw, they've seen um, drops between 50 and 60% in suicide deaths. So for example, some Asian countries had found that pesticides were being used to kill themselves. People were using pesticides that you could just buy off uh, the shelf in the grocery store, highly lethal. So their governments removed those pesticides, made it so that you had to have a license or you had to go through special steps to get those pesticides. So it was not readily accessible. And they saw suicide rates drop between 40 to 60% in those countries. That's amazing. That's, that's effective. You know, we're, we're seeing um, the saving of lives through lethal means safety, finding ways to make the environment safe. So all of this is effective. And safety plans mean um, at the end of the safety plan, the six-stage safety plan is about making the environment safe. So collaborating with your loved ones on how can we make that environment safe. You just heard the first half of the Suicide Awareness episode of our podcast. Please join us next week for the continuation. This has been the Life is Better with You Here podcast with Dr. Childs and our special guests, Dr. Ridley and Stacey Hubbard. For more episodes, you can find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, and many more. We would also like to give gratitude to our sponsors, the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation and Global Insight Productions, without whom we wouldn't be able to do this. For more information about our sponsors, please visit ohiospf.org and globalinsightpro.com. 
And for more details about our guests, use the resources below in the description or on your screen. Don't forget to visit our website, withyouhere.org. We look forward to seeing you next week. And if you have any suggestions for future episode topics, send us a message through the link in the description or the message button if you're using the Anchor site. If you or someone you love is in crisis, please call 988 or text Steve, S-T-E-V-E, to 741-741 for free and confidential support 24-7. And again, thank you.